Well, good evening. If you have your Bibles, we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3 tonight. And I had kind of this weird, bad feeling before I came to church about 20 minutes before, and I said, did I use this message like about six months ago? And I can't remember. So if I did, just act, just forget it. And I, and I hope I didn't. I, I'm not sure. I, I picked this because in our pastor's fellowship a few months ago, I don't remember what, when that was, but this was a discussion we were kind of talking about. And uh, I may not, be, may not be able to answer everything about this question, but this is about living in God's house. And uh, house rules. Do you have house rules in your house? Our government has a house, and there's been a little bit of chaos in the house. I've heard that the new speaker is actually a very committed Christian in a church very similar to ours. And people that know him, they're in northern Louisiana. I was really surprised uh, to read that. But I'm sure that you have some kind of rules in your house. And I think some of the rules that we have in our houses are probably common that we may share with one another. Of course, there are rules that would vary from house to house. Right? We don't all have the same rules. And that maybe, that maybe that depends on a variety of factors. I mean, have you ever seen a kitchen on the second floor of a house? You don't see that. Right? There's a structure to houses, right? There's an order to houses. Your house rules could depend on the design of your house, right? It could depend on where you live, it's a, if it's an apartment or, or a house or the size. Maybe it's even based on some of the culture in your house or the climate in your house, whether we live here in the desert or whether you live in, the, in a place that's freezing cold. Paul is dealing with some of these house rules and he's telling us that in God's house there are some very important basic rules for all of us to consider. You know, I, I just heard tonight that Mr. Keyes is going to join the United States Marine Corps, and he's going to go for a visit there in a couple of weeks, and I'm sure that he's going to learn some rules that they're going to teach him. I mean, you cannot have, right, a organized military without some serious rules that they're, they're enforced, right? Who, who would want to have that? And so there is something good about a certain measure of organization in our homes, in society, and even in God's house. Paul has already listed some of these issues, right, to Timothy. In this particular three verses we're looking at this evening, we have this general statement that God has, you know, expectations for those who are part of his house, family members and so on. And then we have an important set of beliefs that we are supposed to cling to. But elsewhere in 1 Timothy, even 2 Timothy and Titus, Paul talks about certain things right, that were being disruptive in God's house. One of those, if you want to look briefly in chapter 1, he says in, in verse 3, right, Timothy, he says, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, right? The church is having some problems, right, with false teachers and teaching things that Paul says this should not be taught in a house because it's disruptive, right, to the truth that God has revealed. And that's one example, right? In dealing with false doctrine, he says you have to correct it, but you also have to teach true doctrine. Later in chapter 1, he says one of the things that makes God's house orderly, right, in a particular church is that the church preaches Jesus Christ. We preach who he is as a great mediator between God and man, and that there is a desire, right, for sinners to be saved by the great work of Jesus Christ. 
He gives some instructions in chapter 2 about, I want the church to pray in your corporate prayer, right? And, and that's important. He gives some qualifications for the people that are leading the church. And all of that is supportive of what he comes and says now in chapter 3, the end of chapter 3 of First Timothy. Years ago, I saw a picture, and it was a student protest sign, and I don't know if it, I don't know if, to what extent they were Christians or not, but it said, Jesus, yes, church, no. And uh, that's kind of a, a mentality that we've grown to live with in our day. But the student protests really accurately captured a lot of the spirit of our evangelical age, right? To have just a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and have no concern about living in God's house and following the basic conduct God expects in his house. The household of faith, this theme, I mean, this is really the, uh, the verses we look at this is the purpose of why Paul wrote the letter, right? It doesn't give us all of the rules that are kind of surrounding it, but this is the heart of why Paul wrote to Timothy. In these three verses of 1 Timothy three fourteen through 16, it reveals that the church, right, it is necessary, the church is essential, and the church is important. This may be one of the shortest uh, express, uh, statements in the New Testament about what we believe about the church, what we call ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. You know, I just looked at Robert and I noticed that he and I were part of a kind of a, a church uh, years ago. Uh, and in the church that I belong to, you couldn't be a man with a beard or a mustache if you were a member of the church. That, that is, Joe just looked at me with unbelief. That's not a house rule that is in the Bible, right? But churches can establish a lot of kind of man-made rules about order that really have nothing to do with the gospel and our witness in Jesus Christ. There were a lot of other silly rules, and he, he is, I'm sure, very familiar with that kind of thinking. <clears throat> Local churches seem to be visible expressions of what we also believe to be true, the universal church. There, there is such a thing as the universal church. We are to be committed to the church in spite of its many imperfections, and I think all of us have moments in our life, at least I've had in my past, where you're not sure if you want to keep hanging out with the church much longer because there are so many problems in the church. I remember I experienced that as a missionary. Sunday was the worst day of the week. I could not wait for Sunday to end, and that was a five-year Beautiful, looking back, beautiful experience of sanctification. I'm now thankful for it, but it was hard going through it. I don't feel that way with you, of course. In the New Testament, I mean, maybe, I hope you don't feel that way with me. <laughs> In the New Testament, it's inconceivable to be a Christian and not part of God's house, part of his family. In my mind, it's just inconceivable. There has to be some really great exception to that. And so the church seems to be the primary means of, of how God accomplishes his mission in the world. The metaphor of house or household, right, which Paul uses tonight and he uses elsewhere in 2 Timothy and in Titus is important. The church's message and ministry is determined, right, by the very nature, right? Christ is ahead of the church and we have a message to proclaim, I think we all agree that God's presence is everywhere in creation, but his covenant presence is specially in the church. That's where he abides with his people. Again, the New Testament seems to tell, teach us two different aspects of the church. We have the church universal, and I think there are several, I have several uh, references in my notes. And we also believe in local churches, which are visible expressions of 
the great universal church. Not everybody believes in those distinctions. Some people don't believe in the universal church at all. And again, going back to Robert, in some of the churches we were part of, if you go from one church to the other, they want you to be rebaptized in their particular church because they don't believe in the universal church. The church our first thought this evening, the church is God's dwelling place. I mean, I think that Ray already read it from Ephesians. Ephesians 2 is very similar uh, to what we see here in Paul's writing uh, to Timothy. But the church is God's dwelling place. Just as God dwelt with his people in a special way in the tabernacle, also in the temple, right in the Old Testament, he uniquely dwells with his people today in the church. And again, Paul's teaching in Ephesians 2 that we heard a little while ago is very similar to what we read here in these short verses in 1 Timothy. Good good families establish and maintain some kind of order in their home. It can vary, right? We're not saying that all has to look the same. But in verse 14, we we open this passage and and Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave, there's the conduct statement, in the household of God, right? In God's family, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. This is one of the reasons why Paul believed he needed to write this particular letter uh, to this situation that Timothy was in. Timothy needed some help, right? Paul's like, I'm not sure I can get there. But if I can't get there, if I'm delayed, this is what you should do until I come. And and it's very helpful uh, on what he wrote, right? You need to deal with some of the false teaching, some of the improper conduct that was occurring within the church. He's encouraging Timothy, right, to fulfill his calling and his duties in whatever leadership position he was there. He's like, he's not a pastor. Some people have said he's like an apostolic legate. Paul kind of moves him around wherever he needs him, uh, working under his authority. Here are my instructions, Timothy. This is what you need to do. Many years ago, my wife and I were uh, in our little apartment, and we had a visitor from another country. He was actually a pastor, and he's speaking to his son, his wife on the phone. And, I mean, suddenly, uh, I guess we realize, hey, he's now talking to his teenage son. And... The conversation seemed to get a little bit heated, right? The son was not obeying mom. And there was this kind of threat, I'm coming home, son. And when I get home, if I find out you're not obeying mom, if you're disobeying the house rules, you're going to have to deal with me, okay? And maybe Paul does that at certain times in his letter, right, to establish conduct. This was kind of like a threat. I'm coming back soon. You need to listen, and so the people in the congregation there with, Tim- with Timothy were there. They needed to listen to Paul's instructions that he gave to Timothy. Again, Paul could not be with him at this moment, and this is why he wrote. Paul was doing gospel business somewhere else. Again, almost every family has a certain amount of some kind of structure, some kind of understanding to establish some kind of conduct in a home. If there is nothing in a home, then there's probably going to be a lot of problems, isn't there? There's going to be something going wrong if there is like no structure and it's just a free-for-all. The church is not a frat house, right? In a house, a family house shouldn't be like that either, right? There should be a measure of respect, love, and conduct. 
I mean, even unbelievers understood this before the Apostle Paul, right? Aristotle understood this. Uh, He wrote about this in his politics. He has a whole section on the family, his understanding of the family and the so-called household code that Paul now is using in this letter. He taught also in the importance that there has to be some type of order in the home, respect, structure, and love. Both Plato and Aristotle were not Christians, but they did recognize that the family is the fundamental building block of society. I mean, when the family collapses, the society collapses. How can you have a solid church if you have like zero families? It's possible, but it's really hard. How can you find future leaders if there are no men in the church? There are places like that around the world, and it's extremely difficult. What do you do? And so the house, just at large in our nation, it's the basis for society. One of the things I appreciated in the Sunday school lesson and my own study this morning was to just appreciate again in that statement I made from the, the author, the vindication of bureaucracy. I mean, we're so tired of bureaucracy in our government, right? Things that don't work at times. But there is also a positive statement of good organization, and God can bless that. And some of you have these organizing skills to help the church in a better way. And we noted there that God often causes revival to come when his people are really organized. And that was kind of a refreshing thing for me to, to read about Uh, this past week. So homes in general need to have some kind of essential order. The New Testament authors make good use, perhaps, of this household code. Of course, they modify it. Later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul will return to this image. The ancient household codes, like the biblical household codes, are related in that both were meant to create a healthy environment of stability. Paul uses this, this language at least five times in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. It's also found in Colossians, Ephesians, and in 1 Peter. This means that God expects his family members to abide by his house rules, right? The basic rules that he establishes for us. Paul says, if I delay, in verse 15, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Again, generally speaking, if, we, if houses on earth have a general expectation for some kind of organization, then specifically God expects in his church or certain things to be believed and certain behavior to follow. There is a Christian manner of conduct, a proper manner of conduct in God's house. I mean, when you visit someone someone else's house, they invite you to dinner, do you just go in there and tear up the living room and make a mess and just leave and don't say goodbye? You know, you're, 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 the person who invited you probably wouldn't appreciate that. Again, the main idea here of behavior or conduct, it's not, it's not focused on a specific rule in these verses, is it? It just tells us that there is a basic expectation that God has of conduct for His people. It's true, it was true in the Old Testament, and it's also true in a new way in the New Testament. I mean, generally speaking, most homes are led by a father or by a father and a mother. Churches are supposed to be led by pastors, by elders. And Timothy was the appointed one that Paul had placed there in this particular location. Stay at Ephesus to to be a good steward in God's house. Timothy didn't own the church. We don't own the church. We are to be stewards. God owns the church. In chapter 3, verse 5, if someone does not know how to... This is the, the leadership issue, right? Comparing 
What do we look for when we're looking for new elders? If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how would he care for God's church, right? The, the individual family household is a micro, it's a, it's, right? It, that's the test unit. If you're doing well there, then maybe God wants you to be a leader in the church. When anyone tries to disturb the peace, the order, the stability of a local church, it is the duty of the elders to confront that, right? In a, in a loving way, but a forceful way if we have to, right? That's that balance between toughness and tenderness. We need to defend God's expectations for his house in behavior and in basic belief. And Timothy was called to do that. Normally children are born into the family. Sometimes they're adopted. That's great. We are supernaturally born into the church, aren't we? By, by the Holy Spirit. In John 3, we call this regeneration. The Spirit awakens a dead sinner. We respond in faith and now we find ourselves in this relationship with Jesus Christ, which should normally and naturally go into a relationship with a local church. Again, it's just inconceivable for me for Christians that think that they have, they have no responsibility to be part of a local congregation. In God's house, we are called to love one another. As Pastor Dan taking us through first Peter, right? You cannot fulfill some New Testament commands. I mean, you're the people that probably don't need to hear this. I'm going to skip it. We, we love each other. We're called to forgive each other, to be patient with one another. And we're not always like that. We're called to grow together in this community centered around Jesus Christ and the word that has been given to us in this mission. I don't think we can grow properly in our spiritual life without the church. I mean, Jesus is the head of his church. Why divorce those two? They belong together. Many people have tried to do it, but I think it just doesn't work. We believe that true doctrine, good doctrine, is the basis for correct or right living. The false teachers in the church of Ephesus were disrupting the church. Bad teaching leads to wrong living, doesn't it? It's living that doesn't please God. In the Old Testament, we have good examples and bad examples of conduct in God's temple. I mean, Eli wasn't a very good example, was he? Uh, we have other examples. David was a good example in the context of the temple. This is the statement we refer to, we, we hear in the Old Testament and the New, I will be your God and you will be my people. God has chosen to come and dwell with his people in the Old Testament. He did that through the central activity of the tabernacle and then later through the temple. And Israel was a unique people. They were marked off as being separate from the other nations. And the church is in that same location today. The Old Testament is filled with verses describing the house of God as his temple, the place where he makes his presence known in a special way. Of course, in the very beginning of time, when God created the world, Eden was that place, wasn't it? Where God fellowshiped with Adam, but that ended in failure. And then later, the nation of Israel was given that privileged status. And although there were some wonderful high moments, that largely ended in failure. It is only through Jesus Christ that God's presence now comes to the Spirit to once again dwell with those who believe in Jesus Christ. The saints of the Old Testament and now the believers in the New. They make up this new one man in Christ. 
The New Testament provides many verses describing the church as God's house, God's temple, God's family. They seem interconnected, don't they? All three of these ideas, they intimately relate the connectedness to each one in our relationship to God. Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Peter 2, Hebrews 3, 4 and 5, 1 Peter 4, 17. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Right? The, language, the language and concepts from the Old Testament of Israel being set apart, they're just picked up because of the resurrection, because of Jesus Christ and His coming, and they're now applied to the church. It's kind of a radical development, isn't it? Because Jesus is the true temple, those who are connected to him are part of this new and living temple. I mean, you can get in a lot of trouble saying that today with the war in Israel and a lot of misunderstanding, in my, in my view, about applying certain passages of Scripture to the church or not. The church is the new and final dwelling place of God. Again, Ephesians 2.22, In Him you are being built together, built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I mean, we go our ways tonight and we see each other, some of us, not until next Sunday, and we kind of, it's easy to lose track of each other, but when we gather together again on Sunday, right, the day of the resurrection to worship God, we are reminded again, we are His new creation, and Christ is the head of this new creation, the present creation is passing away, but the church of the new creation will never pass away. No matter how weak it looks at certain times, the church will never pass away because we are connected intimately to Jesus Christ. We are His family. I was going to say we are His new family, but we are part of the expanded family, aren't we? And there are people all over the world that are part of the same family. And so the central teaching here in verses 14 through 16, it's going to be explained in more detail in chapters 4, 5, and 6. But we gather each week in worship. Uh, we worship the living God, right? We don't just attend church, we come to worship. We gather to sing praises to our living God, to pray to this living God, to hear the voice of the living God, through preaching and teaching, to gather at His table. And we believe that God is uniquely present, right? covenantally present because of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. God gives spiritual life to His church. Again, we believe the church is not a human invention. It's a divine institution because God is the living God and He gives spiritual life to His church. It's established by God. These architectural descriptions express important truths in this passage. The metaphors that Paul is using here to describe the church. The first metaphor was that of a family or that of a household. And now he goes to the building metaphor. When, when Pastor Dan was preaching through First Peter, he mentioned, you remember this verse, First Peter 2.5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right There's that building language in the very beginning. He tells, Paul tells Christians in Corinth and 1 Corinthians 3.9, you are God's building. 
That's interesting, isn't it? The apostles cannot be referring to a literal stone building there. Again, Paul says, if I delay and come into you in verse 15, right? Know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. There's the architectural metaphor, isn't it? What is a pillar and a buttress? This is the church of the living God. Again, throughout Scripture, the language house of God refers to what? A temple. It doesn't just refer to any old building. It is the temple of God. It's the holy habitation where he dwells with his temple. God is the king. This is a royal temple. And it's coming to this new fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his church. I think Paul said in the language of Ephesians 2 that God, he has one house. He doesn't have two houses. He has one house and you either belong in that house by the grace of God or you're not part of that house. And in that house, righteousness, peace, and love exist because of what God has done for us and what He is continuing to do through us through the work of the Holy Spirit. That architectural imagery, God is the owner of this structure. He is the owner of this temple, of this house. And it has come to, from the Old Testament now to the New, it has come to a great climax in the revelation, the coming of Jesus Christ. If God's presence dwells uniquely and it is fully uh, there in Jesus Christ, and if Jesus Christ is head of the church, then the church is God's new temple. The church is the pillar, Paul says, and support of truth. And I would say there of ultimate truth. Your translation at the end of verse 15, mine says a pillar and buttress of truth. Some, maybe yours says the found, a foundation of truth. Earlier in this verse, Paul instructed us about our duty to one another. Now he reminds us of our duty to the truth. And the church has a duty to the truth, don't we? We have been entrusted with truth, and we have a duty to protect that truth and to proclaim that truth. The church does not create her own truth. By virtue of Jesus being the head of the church and divinely calling the church into existence, the church is now entrusted with this truth. And in that sense, we can say that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. Christ is the head. A pillar, a beam, a load-bearing support plays a very important function in the building. Take it out and something might fall down. In the great temple of Diana, also known as the temple of Artemis, there in Ephesus, there was approximately 100 large pillars upholding a marble roof. I mean, that had to be something that was quite difficult to build. And yet the church, we are called and described here as the pillar of truth itself. We are called to uphold truth, to uphold the gospel, and to tell the nations of who Jesus Christ is. The church through the Scriptures makes the greatest claims of ultimate truth in the world. We're claiming to tell the whole world that we have the answers to the most difficult questions that a person can ask in life. And we're saying that those answers are found in Jesus Christ. I mean, many of us have, and we have staked our life on this. We've made decisions in our life based upon our connection to the church. Perhaps you've given up a certain career move or whatever because you believe that truth exists in the church. I mean, that's incredible to see God's people do that. 
The church must never, well, local churches must, must never collapse under the weight of false teaching. The universal church will never collapse, but local churches should never collapse. But they have in the past, haven't they? And they are today. Later, Paul will charge the false teachers of the church of Ephesus with abandoning the truth in chapter 6, verse 5. We can't do that. If the truth is unpleasant, we still have to believe in the truth. We can't change the truth. We pray that God will help us to understand His truth and to proclaim it in a way that would honor Him. We, we live in a society, in a modern society, as you all know, where people have so, they just have crazy views about what is true, right? I mean, this is, how else can you say it? The bitter fruits of various philosophical beliefs from centuries ago, they've just come home to roost. And it's just resulting, as we all know, in just chaos and complete conflict, It's all over popular entertainment. It's all over education. It's through the communications that we experience. I mean, sometimes we too are kind of affected by this. Combined with a lot of poor biblical teaching in churches, and you have a recipe for churches, they're going to collapse. And they're not going to be able to stand for the truth. And may God help us not to fall into that category. We don't want local churches to collapse and give up on the truth. We, we want them to remember their calling. The church proclaims universal truth that is absolute to the world. We have been entrusted with this deposit of faith, which is the deposit of truth. John Stott writes this. I like this comment. He says, quote, The church depends on the truth for its existence. The truth depends on the church for its defense. And proclamation. And then our second thought, and this might be a little bit shorter, this is actually the profundity of the whole statement, isn't it? The church proclaims the mystery of faith. And by mystery here, I'm not speaking of Hardy Boy's mystery or Nancy Drew mystery. It's not a detective mystery. This is a theological mystery. And what I mean by that is we have been revealed, the truth has been revealed to us about the mystery that we are going to look at. And we can believe whatever has been revealed, but that does not mean that we can exhaust the depths of this mystery, this truth that has been revealed to us. I cannot explain certain things about the incarnation. Our faith is reasonable, but reason alone cannot explain the beauty of it. We profess the majestic Christ mystery. This mystery of godliness is not referring to your godliness or my godliness, but to the godliness in the content of the message of who Jesus Christ is. Verse 16 makes six important and beautiful statements about Jesus Christ. Again, these are all so basic The incarnation is a beautiful mystery of meekness and majesty. Verse 16 summarizes the content of the truth that the church is to defend and protect. It's not the only truth, but it's what Paul is talking about here. It's important truth. It's essential truth. Verse verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. I read that that phrase, great indeed, was used by Stoic philosophers to describe something that was beyond dispute, like it's just common knowledge, everybody knows it, and who would ever think to raise an objection against it? The incarnation, right? It's true. It happened. And we all believe in it. 
And we pray that we would never, ever doubt the incarnation of the Word of God. That's common Christian consent. All Christians agree to this great mystery of godliness. If you don't or can't agree to it, you can't call yourself a Christian. You're not a member in God's house if you reject that. A beautiful statement in verse 9 of chapter 3 about deacons, right? They are to hold to the mystery of our faith. That's a wonderful statement. This mystery of godliness should should summarize the content, faith, and belief of every Christian. And, And this was expected of every Christian to believe this. Still is. This verse may, could be an early Christian hymn about Jesus Christ. Many people believe that. Right? The way that it's maybe indented in your Bible may maybe give a hint that, that we think that may be ha- ha- the background of it. But this, God, this, this mystery of godliness, it's always related to Jesus Christ. It's a common confession that the early church believed, even in Paul's day. It's a beautiful, it looks like it's poetic, description of the miracle of the incarnation elsewhere in john's gospel he says it like this in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth i mean maybe paul was quoting a, some kind of a Christ creed that they, they believed and promoted together. Maybe they said this in their worship. Maybe, he's, maybe this was already in existence. Maybe he's borrowing that and putting it and reminding Timothy, hey, this is the content of our faith. I mean, this is a, this is a starting point. We can't change that. These are the beliefs of being part of God's house. These are part of the conduct for our behavior. In the opening chapter of Romans, Paul says in Romans 1.3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. That the incarnation is a, I mean, it's getting close to Advent season, right? And there are some wonderful Christmas hymns about the incarnation and the way they're worded. It's just beautiful. The father vindicated his son through the resurrection. We see that In verse 16, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. At least, I think that's what he's talking about, the resurrection there. Romans 1.4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Later, Paul tells us that Jesus was raised for our justification. If Jesus Christ is risen, that is the basis of why we will be risen again too one day. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. If Jesus Christ isn't risen, we're all wasting our time, aren't we? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But he says, but He is risen. And the angels in holy wonder beheld all of the development of the plan of redemption, worshiping from afar. They they saw the incarnation of Jesus Christ coming as a baby. They saw His baptism from the beginning of His earthly ministry. They witnessed the great temptation that Jesus successfully resisting Satan. The angels witnessed the unfolding story of salvation. Angels have little interest in perhaps debates about this or that that we can entertain ourselves with. They're not interested in attending a boring philosophy conference. 
The angels surround the throne of God in worship, and they are sent throughout the earth on special mission to help God's people. And so we proclaim these wonderful truths about Jesus Christ. The incarnation and the resurrection are just so fundamental to the nature of the church and Christianity. The church, as God's people, we must faithfully and fearlessly defend Jesus Christ, exactly what Paul has written many centuries ago. And we can do that as we gather together. We do it in a multitude of ways. I think there's a lot of truth to the statement that a life of godliness, right? Someone that is focused on this aspect of our faith is one of the best apologetics you can ever encounter in your life. A person who is focused upon Jesus Christ and living your life to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, that is a wonderful apologetic for the unbelieving world to see. And we'll conclude tonight by focusing on this belief that we believe in the Great Commission. That's one of the implications of the coming of Jesus Christ. The church is entrusted with a sacred mission, a message, and also a mission. In verse 16, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There's a question about a chronological thing here, and I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. But these three truths, just briefly. After the resurrection, the apostles proclaimed the gospel of this crucified and risen Savior, this Messiah. And they began in Judea, then they moved to Samaria and to the known parts of the world of their time. And that pattern is still true today, right? The gospel is supposed to be taken to every nation, to every person possible before Jesus Christ returns. There is that tradition that says that Thomas went to India and that he proclaimed the gospel to the people there. This verse encourages us not only to get out and share the gospel through personal evangelism, but it also tells, tells us through the phrase, believe done in the world, that the gospel will be successful. Not everyone's going to reject it. A lot of people will reject it, and that sometimes discourages us. But there are a lot of people that haven't believed in the gospel. Heaven is going to be a great throng of people. The gospel will be successful and many sinners have already come to faith in Jesus Christ by the time that Paul is writing. And so today, the church, we are called to continue preaching and teaching the gospel, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, His death and in His resurrection. This is the hope for the nations, isn't it? This is the hope for the ultimate hope for the Palestinians and the Israelis. Both of them are rejecting Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham. And we want both of those groups of people to be part of the family of God. That would be the ultimate solution. I don't know the solution diplomatic and militarily wise. I don't know what's going to happen there. Jesus ascended in great triumph. He was taken up into glory. There's a great hymn that I can't remember the tune, but I know it's in the Trinity hymnal. Golden harps are sounding, angel voices ring, pearly gates are open, open for the King. Christ, the King of glory, Jesus, King of love, is gone up in triumph to His throne above. All His work is ended, joyfully we sing, Jesus hath ascended, glory to our King. 
There's another old hymn in the Trinity hymnal that I came across the words. I don't know if I know the words, the tune to this, but it goes like this. Jesus, with thy church abide, be her Savior, Lord and guide. While on earth her faith is tried, we beseech thee, hear us. And every statement ends, we beseech thee, hear us. Keep her life and doctrine pure. Grant her patience to endure. Trusting in thy promise sure, we beseech thee, hear us. May she one in doctrine be, one in truth and charity, winning all to faith in thee, we beseech thee, hear us. May she guide the poor and blind, seek the lost until she find, and the brokenhearted bind, we beseech thee, hear us. Save her love from growing cold, make her watchman strong and bold, fence her round the peaceful fold, we beseech thee, hear us. Arm her soldiers with the cross, brave to suffer, toil or loss, counting earthly gain but law, dross, we beseech thee, hear us. And the last verse says, may she holy triumphs win, over, overthrow the host of sin, gather all the nations in, we beseech thee, hear us. I mean, God is a missionary God, isn't he? He longs for the salvation of sinners. I mean, Paul says something pretty close to that in First Timothy. We can involve ourselves in evangelistic praying. I mean, he says something similar, right, in 1 Timothy 2, in the first four verses. Donald Guthrie said, a Hebrew Christ has become a Christ for the nations. And that's certainly true, isn't it? We don't exist simply for ourselves. Yes, we're called to worship. We are different from the world, but we are also called to seek the evangelization of the world. I'll close with the illustration I listened with that accent of Alistair Begg and his Scottish accent talking about Eric Little from Scotland. Eric Little was an Olympic athlete in 1924. He was a gold medalist. He was a rugby player. He believed that God wanted him to be a missionary, and so he left Waverley Station there in, the, I guess, the U.K., many people had come to gather to say goodbye. I mean, you wouldn't see this in our day today, would you? Not like this. As the people gathered, he dropped the window of his train compartment and shouted to the crowds outside, Christ for the world, for the world needs Christ. Then he led them in the singing of all hail, the power of Jesus' name. I mean, could you imagine that moment in history to see something like that? He died in a prisoner of war camp. The mystery of godliness was burned into his soul. He lived to see unbelieving people become committed followers of Jesus Christ. And that is a wonderful example, right, of someone who took the message seriously and was willing to go to a different nation to share this good news of Jesus Christ. We can thank God that he has brought us into his family and into his home. And may he keep us faithful until our final breath or until his son returns. Father in heaven, we thank you for Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy. Lord, we are so thankful that you have included us by your grace through Jesus Christ, that we are now part of your family. And Lord, you have brought us into your temple and that Jesus Christ is this new temple. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as members of your household to behave in a way that brings glory and honor to you. May our behavior be motivated by grace. And Lord, may you help us to spur one another on in our walk in this world. 
And Lord, we pray that you would use us and use our other fellow believers in other churches in different parts of the world to reach the lost with the message that your son Jesus Christ can save them from their sin. We thank you for your work of grace that you're doing in the hearts of some of the people in our own congregation, maybe some that have newly come to faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to support them as they enter into your kingdom, into your household, Lord, that we would also love them and welcome them. Father, help us this week, Lord, that we would honor you. And we thank you for these verses in First Timothy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.